what is up and welcome this is the fan section podcast don't adjust your dial yes this is not the voice you're accustomed to hearing uh alan is down under the weather uh and so the show must go on though so i tyson am recording this podcast uh from section 100 to section 300 from the bleachers to the suites uh we are here for any and all types of fans we don't look at just the uh daily recurring everyone making the same comment or different comment about the same news and storylines we try and do a little more in-depth look into the college football landscape and so we're going to go ahead and do just that and a couple first notes here i want to i want to dive into that we got a lot of feedback from last week on a uh, situation where alan was pretty uh animated about uh both florida state and notre dame and about how you know at least notre dame but also florida state could be uh frauds parading as something more than frauds uh man florida state just a complete regression and embarrassment this week going into this week's game against jacksonville state they had a streak of 97 and 0 against teams that they were favored vegas odds by 27 or more points that goes back 50 years uh that record stands no more mckenzie milton uh, also, complete regression. Um, haven't heard anything if there's been any issues related to his injury uh, history, but he only had 133 yards, one, one touchdown, one interception. They've got some decisions to make who they're going to be choosing as their quarterback going forward. This kind of mixed mash going back and forth is clearly not working. Uh, more importantly, though, I mean, their defense gave up 21 first downs to an FCS program in Jacksonville State. They gave up 350 yards and then as you may have seen, that last-minute kind of pass touchdown to seal the win for Jacksonville State, where Florida State missed at least three, maybe four uh, decent attempts at a tackle to, uh, to salvage the victory. And to make things even worse, Florida State lineman Verde Scott, after the game, decides this is the perfect moment for him to propose to his girlfriend. Hey, very happy for him and his girlfriend, but just the optics of his proposal with Jacksonville State players celebrating their victory in the background. Uh, just really embarrassing. I think Mike Norvell, I had some really high words for him last week. Um, some praise and stuff. I, man, there's some culture build that's got to occur here because it they did not perform. They did not seem to care all that much. And, I mean, clearly if your player's like, well, the game's over, I'm going to propose, you know, they're not right in that mi- mindset. Uh, so that final was Florida State 17, Jacksonville State 20. Uh, also, I think noteworthy, uh, in their 59-17 win, North Carolina quarterback Sam Howell, 21 of 29, 352 yards, three touchdowns. He also had 11 carries for 104 yards and two more touchdowns. I think he is creeping ever so slightly his way back into the Heisman race. Uh, we'll see as their schedule continues to play out. Uh, after that loss that they had last week against Virginia Tech. And speaking of Virginia Tech, uh, Virginia Tech, it still baffles me how they were able to secure that win. Um, They they won this past week against Middle Tennessee, 35-14. And Burmeister seems like a capable quarterback, but their defense gave up 349 yards to a Middle Tennessee program at home. That's not good. Um, next week, Virginia Tech gets West Virginia. I'll talk about that a little bit later. And West Virginia, who's actually 1-1, one one, uh, is a slight favorite, 2.5 points of Vegas odds. Um, and so, you know, we'll see where that all shapes out. Uh, one sort of last note before I dive into the games. Uh, Oklahoma's quarterback, Spencer Rattler, man, he really came back with a vengeance after that dud they laid against Tulane two weeks ago, barely, or a week ago, barely getting out with the victory. Um, Spencer Rattler this past weekend against West Carolina, 20 of 26, 243, which is not a ton of yards, but five touchdowns. I mean, they cut through West Carolina so easily that he really didn't spend a ton of time on the field. Backups came in, got a lot of uh, time for the younger guys. Uh, But also, more importantly, I think, West Carolina in this game, they they lost 76-0. to Oklahoma's defense held them to only 178 yards of offense, total offense, and forced three turnovers. So, you know, for Oklahoma, as they go into facing sort of the meat of their schedule, um, you need a defense who's going to be able to create turnovers and create opportunities, Uh, you know. And if your offense can be as high-flying as theirs can be, 
then you can put, put games away pretty early if you're able to do that. I mean, just look at a team like Iowa who doesn't have near the offensive firepower, but you get turnovers. Like, their defense is just so uh, equipped at doing. Uh, I mean, you can put games away really quickly. Uh, but with that being said, you know, we'll take a quick look here at the updated uh, uh, rankings before we dive into our uh, top 25. Uh, so this, these are rankings as of uh, September the 12th. Alabama is, remains at number one. Georgia, number two. Oklahoma, I guess by the skin of their teeth, remains at three. Oregon, with that big win over Ohio State, jumps all the way up to four. And Iowa, a team that both Alan and I had in our top four last week, they got the big win against Iowa State. They are now five. Clemson has dropped down to six. And Texas A&M, after a real scare against Colorado, is now at seven. The top ten finishes out this way. Cincinnati, then Ohio State after the loss to Oregon. And Penn State, who's really kind of a quandary. They've got, uh, you know, at least one very good win. Uh, but it's, it's really interesting to see how they're winning when you look at their numbers. It, it doesn't seem dominant. Uh, but with that being said, we'll go ahead and dive into the first game that everybody's talking about, the one that really changed the landscape of the playoff picture, and that's number 12, Oregon, winning 35-28 to 28 over then-ranked number 3, Ohio State. Um, I think one thing right of note uh, out of the get-go um, is that Oregon's quarterback, Anthony Brown, the grad transfer from Boston College, he, uh, I think it's safe to say, although the numbers don't necessarily indicate it, he outplayed, I think, C.J. Stroud. Uh, he, did, he did what he had to do a lot more effectively than C.J. Stroud did. Uh, something of note, probably not many people know, but C.J. Stroud has the fourth most passing yards in the country. I mean, this is a freshman quarterback, and they're, they're asking him, with, with little help in the running game, Hey, sling the ball around, throw for 400, 450, 500 yards a game. I mean, I, it's only a matter of time before the guy, it's, it's really surprising he hasn't made more mistakes than he's made. Uh, you know, but we talked last week, and and uh, I think we were both kind of in agreement that, that C.J. Stroud is just not quite there uh, yet. I mean, he's playing exceptionally well, but they're putting a ton on his shoulders. Uh, but as far as Oregon goes, uh, running back C.J. Burdell who we had slotted as our uh, preseason Pac-12 Player of the Year. 20 carries, 161 yards, two touchdowns. He had an additional 34 yards receiving and a touchdown. I mean, the offense came up big when they needed to. It, it was really uh, impressive to see how, um, you know, in situations where you would normally see Ohio State, okay, they're down. They were down against Minnesota, right? And then they'd score. And the difference is when Ohio State scored last week, Minnesota didn't always have an answer. Every time Ohio State scored against Oregon, Oregon put together a drive, went right down the field, and pushed the lead back up to 7 or to 14. It, it, it was really um, a really impressive victory for Oregon. And I think even bigger than that, I mean, maybe not to Oregon fans, but on a bigger scale, that, that was a statement win for the Pac-12. Uh, it really pushed open the, um, pushed open the playoff window for some other teams to maybe have a chance to get in there now that Ohio State and Clemson have both lost. Uh, and so, and also it, it was a little bit of a redemption win. I mean, when you have last week, uh, Washington State lost, uh, Oregon State lost, uh, you know, at some of these teams, Cal lost to Nevada. I mean, two, two group of five teams. Those are, those are not great performances by the Pac-12. So I think this week, especially with, with the one side caveat being Utah, against um, BYU. The Pac-12, I think, performed pretty well this week. Um, on the defensive side, uh, the sophomore defensive back, Mikhail Wright, for Oregon, had 10 tackles and a forced fumble. Him and, and uh, freshman Noah Sewell, um, seven tackles, one sack, one forced fumble. Uh, Oregon's defense just flat out outplayed Ohio State's defense, too. I mean, the, the, the game in the trenches was, was controlled pretty much on both sides of the ball by Oregon. Ohio State, for the first time in, as far as I can remember, did not record a single sack. You have a first-team All-American D-tackle in Haskell Garrett. You know, you, you have this defense that 
is supposed to be, uh, you know, one of the better defenses in the country, at least on a team. You know, it, we're used to Oklahoma getting the mantra of, well, big offense and uh, just complete weak defense. Check this out. Ohio State points given up in their last three games that they played. Now, granted, two of these teams are very, very good. But three games ago, Ohio State against Alabama in the championship game gave up 52 points. Last week against Minnesota, they gave up 31 points. And this week against Oregon, they gave up 35 points. So in their last three games, their defense has given up 118 points. That is not good. That is really not good, especially when you look at the better teams, the real high echelon teams in the country. When we just saw, got to see Georgia and Clemson last week, that was a, that was a real defensive battle. You know, and, and Ohio State's defense has no business in the conversation with them. Um, Oregon, on this Ohio State defense, Oregon put up 269 rushing yards. So, you know, I, I just I just think Ohio State has some you know, they they've got they've got some corrections they've got to make here because they're going out there throwing the ball around trying to pass for 400 500 yards and their defense is just getting slammed cuz they can't find a way into the end zone and then the defense is just out there all day. So, it'll be interesting to see how that progresses. Uh, with Ohio State and with Oregon. But Oregon, big jump up to number four in the rankings this week. The next game, though, that I think we need to highlight is, you know, and, you know, you may call me a homer, but number five in the rankings, Texas A&M, comes to Denver to play really a kind of historically, or at least in recent history, a beleaguered Colorado Buffalo program. Okay, preseason the, the, the polls, even the Pac-12, had them finishing with maybe four, maybe five wins. Uh, you know, and, and that, that the issues we have at quarterback, we're not going to be able to be overcome. And to a certain extent, Colorado still has questions and concerns at quarterback. But, man, I've got to tell you, uh, after watching that game, this Colorado defense, and Texas A&M's defense as well, but this Colorado defense is a legit top 15 top 20 defense in the country. I mean, it, it was Texas A&M was stuck at seven to three was the score of the game for the better part of three quarters. They could not get across the 50 yard line, and it wasn't until late when Colorado's offense was just was just so poor that we had something like four four or five straight three and outs, punting the ball back. Hey, try again, try again, A&M, try again. That they finally mounted a long drive. That was clearly a fumble before Calzada got into the end zone. And then we did a three and out again. And sure enough, they marched it right down the field. Great over-the-shoulder pass from Calzada for a touchdown. And Texas A&M got the win, 10-7. to I, I, am, I don't believe in moral victories. But I've got to tell you, this I believe in finding building blocks out of games to grow from. And, man, this defense with Colorado has a lot to grow from. Uh, one of the storylines I, I saw kind of coming out of this game was, well, you know, Colorado knocked uh, Texas A&M starting quarterback uh, freshman Haynes King out of the game early, right, uh, with an injured leg. And, and that is true. But that's not a justification for how uh, much their offense was stifled. I mean, Calzada, actually, if you look at his numbers from this game compared to the numbers from uh, Haynes King last week against Kent State, I mean, Calzada just flat out outplayed him. Haynes King had three interceptions last week. You know, so I don't believe there was a massive downgrade at quarterback. And in fact, I've got to be honest with you, late in the game, Texas A&M found uh, a pretty good wrinkle. Well, really both teams did. But Texas A&M found a pretty good wrinkle with a mobile Calzada, kind of standing in the pocket for one or two and then finding a crease and running it. Uh, that really threw off the Colorado defense. Uh, but... With Texas A&M, and again, I don't know, I don't want to overblow this. Uh, you know, it may be uh, a byproduct of Colorado's defense being so great, which I hope is the case, obviously, as a Colorado fan. But when you look at the big-time skill players for Texas A&M, Isaiah Spiller had 20 yards rushing, 56 receiving. Uh, Devin A. Chain, 50 yards rushing, 24 receiving. And Anaya Smith, one yard rushing, 19 yards uh, receiving. I mean, I mean, that's... That is not going to cut it. I mean, you know, you know, 
Alan is on here every week talking about the SEC uh, and how dominant they are. And, and you know, I, I provide very little pushback, to be honest with you. I mean, they've won, what is it now, seven of the last ten national titles. They, 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 uh, it, the mantra that it just means more, it clearly does. Uh, you know, uh, but that doesn't mean every team uh, is is markedly better. And and I got to tell you, Texas A&M, if they roll out that production from their sk- skill players uh, in three weeks against Alabama, they're going to lose by 35. Um, if they rolled that out against Georgia, I don't know if they would score a point. You know, there are some some big powerful defenses in the SEC, and their skill players have to be more productive than that. Uh, next week, Texas A&M gets uh, New Mexico, so that should be an opportunity uh, for them to work on some things and really tie things up. But a total rushing yards number for their team of 97 yards, that is that is really not impressive. Uh, on the flip side, Colorado, um, you know, defensive coordinator Chris Wilson, um, he you know he comes back, he coached the D line under Gary Barnett from 2000 to 2004. And, and man, man, they just have an incredibly strong defense. Uh, they're a top 25 defense in the country in yards given up, and they're tied for fourth in the country, having only given up two touchdowns through the first two weeks of the season. Uh, freshman defensive back Christian Gonzalez uh, and, I mean, safety Isaiah Lewis, both of them over, over six tackles, two tackle for losses. They're buzzing around. They're breaking up passes. And then, obviously, the stalwart linebacker Nate Landman. Another game, 10 tackles, two tackles for loss. Uh, Texas A&M averaged four offensive touchdowns per game last year. They played last year 10 SEC teams and then North Carolina. Those are very, very good defenses, and they averaged four touchdowns per game. Uh, They scored four touchdowns in the game last week against Kent State. And yet, they come to Denver, and this Colorado defense just threw handcuffs on them, and all they could muster was the one late touchdown, uh, you know, with whatever it was, three minutes, two and a half minutes left in the game. Um, yeah, I, I just think Colorado's defense looked impressive. AM's defense also looked impressive. Uh, and the, But there's some questions that need to be cleaned up. Brendan Lewis is not a confident passer in the pocket. Uh, I think it's pretty clear right now. The most effective he was passing was when they rolled him out on the bootleg. Um, and then also, like I said, similarly with uh, Zach Calzada from Texas A&M, uh, I think we really discovered discovered a new weapon in Brendan Lewis on the run. Nine carries, 76 yards. He had a couple. Um, we had a couple drives that were really stalled out. It was second, third, and third and ten, third and fifteen, and he found a way to kind of wiggle through a hole up in the middle and turn them into twenty-yard runs that really gave us a great opportunity to flip the field for the defense. Extended drives, uh, unfortunately, didn't uh, materialize into points. And I'm not, I'm not one that looks back and says, "Hey, uh, you know that 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 call to go for it on fourth down when we were clearly in field goal range." Um, you know, that cost us the game. I wouldn't say that. Uh, there was a lot of football that was played after that. I actually commend Carl Durrell. Hey, you know, when you have a defense like this that can cover for you if you make mistakes and, and you've got a chance against a top-five team in the country, I think you roll the dice. I, I, I commend him for that. It didn't work out in, uh, the, in Colorado's favor, but, man, I think they played really well. They've got a lot to, uh, to look forward to. Um, uh, moving forward, uh, a couple of other uh, notes here. Colorado, 4 of 14 on third downs, 0 of 2 on fourth downs. That, I think, also comes back to a little bit of play calling, but also Brendan Lewis. Just not having the confidence to execute or the awareness to find the, the quick route or the audible to, to make those conversions in those big uh, moments. And then, and then one last uh, tidbit here for the Texas A&M fans. The, that defensive line, DeMarvin Leal and Jaden Peavy are the truth. They are as good as any two defensive linemen, uh, I think, in the country. And so uh, I think that they have a very promising uh, – you have a very promising future to look forward to if your defense is this effective. Just got to figure out what's going on on the offense. The next game, though, that I think we need to jump into is this Iowa State-Iowa game, affectionately referred to as the Cyhawk game. Iowa had won five straight coming into this game. 
you know, Matt Campbell has done an incredible job turning around that Iowa State program. They have been really beleaguered, going all the way back to the days when Seneca Wallace was there. I mean, they, they, they were they had a, a few promising seasons with Seneca Wallace, and then now it's been, whatever, 15 years of just uh, drought until Matt Campbell arrives. And Iowa State is as good as they've ever been as a program, as high as they've ever been as a program. And when you think about that, and then you also consider that Matt Campbell has never beaten Iowa, man, that's tough. That's tough. And I think that also goes to uh, what a great coaching staff Kirk Ferentz has at Iowa there. I think everybody knows I am pretty dang high on Iowa as a program. But, uh, you know, as far as the game is concerned, um, the first quarter ended at 3 to nothing. Uh, Iowa State was winning. So really not a ton of action in the first quarter. Then a 49-yard drive uh, with Tyler Goodson for the touchdown. Then Iowa State goes three and out, and a 71-yard drive. uh, Spencer Petrus to Charlie Jones, 26 yards, uh, 14-3. And then a five-play, 75-yard drive, Brees Hall in for the touchdown. Uh, Game was 14-10 at halftime. Then to start the second half, Brees Hall fumbles, Jack Campbell returns it for a touchdown, uh, and then Iowa gets two field goals. It's 27-10 going into the fourth quarter. Uh, Brock Purdy did not play well, has not played well this year. He was replaced early in the fourth quarter by Hunter Deckers, um, uh, who had a late uh, late touchdown to Tariq Milton, 13-yard touchdown pass. Was just kind of window dressing. The final was 27 to 17, Iowa with the win. Uh, something to keep in mind for Iowa State fans through two games, Brees Hall has only 138 yards and two touchdowns. This was the, the leading rusher in the country last year, and that's all he's been able to muster. Um, that's not going to cut it. Uh, both teams were under 100 yards rushing. Um, and Iowa, there were four Iowa State turnovers, zero for Iowa. So, again, that Iowa defense is just ball hawking. They had those three turnovers uh, against um, uh, against Indiana. Two of them, uh, Riley Moss brought back for touchdowns. Iowa's defense is outstanding. Uh, but this, this Hunter Deckers, this freshman, I think he's really might be coming in and making a bit of a, a competition. You know, Brock Purdy is a real leader for that program. He's been their quarterback, returning starter, obviously. Uh, but he is not performing uh, well this year. And, uh, you know, he's thrown three interceptions already on the year. Deckers comes in 11 of 16, 114, and a touchdown. Granted, it was late in the game. But, you know, Matt Campbell says that Brock is still our guy. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, I, I, I guess, I, I, you know, you got to have some, um, you know, a little commitment to, to the players that, uh, that have brought you here. But Brock Purdy was on five preseason uh, watch lists, and he has just been underwhelming. Um, Iowa, State, Iowa State's defense played well, and like you would expect, and so did Iowa's defense. Uh, linebackers Jake Hummel. Uh, eight tackles and a sack. Mike Rose, seven tackles, tackle for loss. Uh, again, I say it like I said last week, another good Spencer Petrus game. Uh, you know, just over 50%, which is not fantastic, but in his case, when he has his incompletions, he throws them away. He's not trying to force things. 106 yards and a touchdown. Their offense only had 11 first downs in the entire game. Uh so it's really interesting how Iowa plays football because they do not come out of the gate trying to storm the Bastille with their offense. They, it almost seems like they come out of the gate trying to punt to the other team as, like, as a strategy because their defense is just so suffocating and so good at creating turnovers. Um, next week, Iowa gets Kent State. That'll be interesting because Kent State actually has a pretty good offense uh, for a, a Power 5 team. Uh, but I think Iowa will probably lock them down. Iowa State gets UNLV. Boy, Iowa State could really use UNLV. This is a bad UNLV team. Um, you know, they've been up and down in the past, but this year they are 
very much down. Iowa State should be able to uh, get that offense going, get Charlie Kohler back in, and get uh, you know get some of their weapons, some production, get a little more uh, sustainability going. The next game, though, that I want to dive into is uh, Stanford against USC. And maybe I should just preface this by saying, uh, within, a, a, well, Monday, Monday after the game, the LA Times already wrote a story calling Clay Helton to be fired, the head coach of the USC. And by, by the time that uh, I'm recording this podcast, uh, USC has confirmed that they are firing Clay Helton. Uh, I'll, I'll circle back on that after I get through the game here, uh, because there's some interesting storylines there uh, and speculation. But... Um, you know, I, I think something of note first before we get into USC is Stanford sophomore quarterback Tanner McKee. So he uh, he replaced Jack West late in the opening loss to Kansas State. If you recall, they lost to Kansas State 24 to seven last week. Uh, Jack West had two interceptions, just looked really bad. Uh, Tanner McKee came in, and this kid is looking really, really good. He's mobile. He was 16 of 23 for 234 yards, two touchdowns. And then rushed a seven-yard uh, touchdown run as well. Um, you know, uh, another player of note with Stanford, uh, the running back Nathaniel Pete, had uh, six carries for 115 yards and a touchdown. Stanford averaged 10.2 yards per pass. They were completely unafraid of the USC defense, and it showed. USC had nine penalties for 111 yards, and only... Uh, the only turnover was a pick six. So after basically, here's a rundown of the game. After trading punts early, Stanford's Nathaniel Pete, 87-yard touchdown run. Then two two more punts. USC had a 15-play drive, 90 or 15-play 95-yard drive that finished with a touchdown. Keontae Ingram running the ball early in the second quarter. Uh, then two Tanner McKee touchdown passes. Again, I'm telling you. Uh, whoever has Stanford on their schedule, and I believe Colorado does, they're they're going to be a tough out. Uh, the two touchdown passes bookended a field goal from USC. See, I think this is part of the uh, apprehension people have with Clay Helton is he's too uh, readily uh, uh, punting uh, instead of going for fourth down on the opposing side of the field or settling for field goals instead of being more aggressive. And that's not the brand of football that USC really wants to put forth. Um, so USC, um, things were then kind of looking promising. USC got a field goal to start the second half. They held Stanford to a punt. And then this is when the wheels kind of came off. Keaton Slovis uh, threw an interception, pick six, returned 31 yards by Caillou Blue Kelly. That put the score at 28-13. Uh, USC then had a three and out, and McKee rushed for his touchdown to push it to 35-13. This was kind of late in the third quarter, and it was it was done by then. Uh, this game was played at USC, and the fans were booing the their team in the stadium. Late, Keaton Slovis uh, threw a touchdown pass to Drake London, uh, and uh, Darwin Barlow had a touchdown rush. But the game was the game was over already. The final score ended up being 42-28, to but it was over long before the 15 points USC put on the board in the fourth quarter. Keaton Slovis finishes with 27 for 42, 223 yards and a touchdown, and then obviously that interception. Uh, USC had zero sacks in the game, zero forced fumbles in their first. They have zero sacks and zero forced fumbles in their first two games. And they're average, uh, averaging giving up 376 yards per game. I mean, those are not great numbers. Um, and so, obviously, USC made the decision that they were going to fire Clay Helton. Uh, so, um, the decision was made by their athletic director, Mike Bone. Uh, I know a little bit about Mike Bone. He's a former athletic director here at the University of Colorado. Uh, and he is, he is a guy who's not afraid to, to scrap and rebuild. Um, you know, he came in at USC to replace Lynn Swan, who uh, many of you would probably remember played at USC and uh, kind of like Mike uh, Mike Garrett, who was athletic director before him. Um, Lynn Swan was hoped to be the person that was going to, or the athletic director that was going to put the program back on the map. Uh, 
Uh, Lynn Swan uh, uh, retired or maybe was forced out uh, in uh, 2019. And so this is year two for Mike Bone. Mike Bone, he meets with the, with the boosters. He meets with the fans. He obviously knows that this is not, that Clay Helton does not have the ship going in the right direction. Uh, and so he's made a decision earlier, much earlier than I thought in the season that that decision would be made. And it, it makes you wonder why they would make that call so early. They have an interim coach who's going to continue to coach. In, in the here and now, how I think that manifests itself is by, by firing Clay Helton now, you probably took your team from what could have been maybe 10-2 and two to now more like 8-4. and four. So this year, they're probably going to lose two games that they didn't. They maybe wouldn't have lost under Clay Helton. But the hope is that you bring in somebody at the end of the season that can get the program going in the right direction. Some of the names that are being floated out there are P.J. Fleck at Minnesota, which I think some of the shine has worn off of him uh, in the last two years. But one name that just has always and continues to be battered around um, with this USC coaching job is James Franklin at Penn State. James Franklin took over after Bill O'Brien at Penn State and has really raised Penn State's program last year aside uh, into a perennial top 10, top 15 program, uh, again, where they where they like it to be. So I think he's in good favor there, and it might be a time where he looks to move on. Uh, another name that's being discussed is Matt Campbell. We were just talking previously, the Iowa State head coach. Uh, so it'll be interesting. There, there, I've heard some banter about the possibility of Urban Meyer uh, returning back to the coaching ranks, which, as a Colorado fan, Colorado being in the same division as USC, that terrifies me because they because Urban Meyer has been tremendous and exceptional everywhere he's gone. Utah, he took them to the Fiesta Bowl before going to Florida, obviously won two national titles, and... Um, uh, had the Heisman Trophy winner, Tim Tebow, and then, you know, goes to Ohio State after some health issues and um, and wins a national title there. So, and really kind of restabilized the program there after uh, a lot of turmoil with Jim Tressel leaving. Uh, and so that, that, would, that would terrify me if he did come to USC, but I don't see that as a real possibility. He just... Got this sweet gig in Jacksonville where they gave him all kinds of control, all kinds of money, and Trevor Lawrence. And, and I mean, basically, they're just going to get their teeth kicked in for two years, and hopefully they have good draft picks and can turn things around. But I don't see how he can get out of that deal, that contract with Jacksonville, this uh, quickly. So another name I did see, well, two more names I did see discussed. One, Chris Peterson the former Boise State coach, and then went to Washington, took them to the playoff. Uh, and then the, the other name being Bob Stoops, the former Oklahoma head, uh, head football coach. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Several of those names don't have coaching jobs currently, and so maybe they can be courted more readily. The other ones, I, I don't know how you can court them during the season. So, But I, I, I've got to be honest with you. I think very highly of Mike Bone. And, uh, and I think he has a plan, uh, and he, he, this will ultimately turn out well for USC. Um, I, just, I just hope that I'm wrong about that. But for USC fans, I think you should, you should have some uh, real encouragement uh, moving forward. So USC gets Washington State next week, and Stanford is going to play Vanderbilt. Man, Vanderbilt is really bad. Stanford is going to have an opportunity to really beat up on them and celebrate their big victory over USC for two straight weeks. Um, but moving on to the next game, which is uh, another program like USC where their fans have extremely high hopes and they've really performed underwhelmingly, is number 15 Texas against Arkansas. A lot of people have sort of been uh, talking about this, like, well, this is a preview of what Texas might be like once they're in the SEC. Uh, i got to tell you, if you're going to get beat by 19 points by Arkansas, I mean, I know Sam Pittman is turning things around a little bit there, but yeesh, that does not show well for your move to the SEC moving forward, at least from a football perspective. Uh, Texas really was never in this game. They were down 16-0 at halftime. Um, and 33-7 to at the end of the third quarter. They cleaned it up in the fourth quarter a little bit, with the final being Texas 21, Arkansas 40. Uh, Arkansas, 
had 333 rushing yards on that Texas defense. Um, you know, maybe let's start with Arkansas here. They have a very strong offensive line, and that obviously is what results in that 333 rushing yards. One concern is the sophomore Brady Latham at right guard, but he played well against Texas, and so I, I think they've got good cohesion there. It'll be interesting to see them play the uh, Kentuckys and Missouris of the world. Can they make that jump from being lower level, lower tier, to that middle tier, or maybe even competing with the Auburns or LSUs of the conference? I, I don't think that they're close to the echelon of you know Florida and then obviously moving up to Georgia and Alabama and those teams, but... But they look much improved. I think Sam Pittman has done a heck of a job, and I do have to give a tip of my hat to Alan, my co-host, because uh, he has been telling me Arkansas is better than you think, and boy, did they show it. Uh, their sophomore quarterback, K.J. Jefferson, had 138 yards uh, and an interception, 10 carries, 73 yards. So you don't get much of anything out of the quarterback, really, but... You had four rushing touchdowns, Smith, Green, Sanders, and Johnson. Um, all six, uh, let's see, six players rushed for over 25 yards, um, 47 total carries. I mean, th this is almost kind of um, military academy-style football. I mean, they run, they run, they run with the quarterback. They run, they've got two running back sets out there. Um, and then on the defensive side, uh, senior linebacker Hayden Henry, had 15 tackles, and Grant Morgan, uh, 13 tackles. So they have a defense that can hold up. Obviously, they had Texas held to seven points going into the fourth quarter, uh, and they've got the running game. So, you know, it, when you have those two components, you can be in most games. Um, you know, but unfortunately, at the end of the day, the big games generally come down to big plays being made by big players at big-time moments. And they don't seem to have that, but they do have a very workmanlike team um, down there in Fayetteville. On the flip side, though, for Texas, uh, they have serious quarterback questions. Hunter Card, it's now been announced that Hunter Card has been replaced by um, Casey Thompson. Uh, Hunter Card in this game, 8 of 15 for 61 yards. When he was replaced in the game uh, by Casey Thompson, Casey Thompson, 5 of 8, 57 yards, but had 7 carries for 44 yards and 2 touchdowns. Casey Thompson, not much of an improvement as a passer, but is a, is a much more mobile uh, and running threat. Um, Sarkeesian, Coach Sarkeesian, uh, has announced now that Casey Thompson will be the starter. Uh, something of note that I just can't stop looking at is we were told all it was the hot pick coming into the season, Texas running back Bijan Robinson. He's the best running back they've had since Ricky Williams, and here he comes, And which, you know, set aside the fact that they have, like, Cedric Benson and actual, like, other really good running backs. Uh, but um, he was many people's picks for the Big 12 Player of the Year coming into the season. He has 19 carries for 60 yards and a touchdown, two receptions for 15 yards in this game. Just basically a non-factor. Um, you know, but when new coaches come in, when you rebuild a program, uh, you have some bumps like this. I just wonder if Texas is just doing the same thing over and over and over with Charlie Strong and then um, – with their uh, previous coach, whose name evades me right now. You know, it's bring them in. They they finish eight wins, some, sometimes nine, sometimes seven, and then they're out after three or four years. And then you bring in the next one and the next one. And I just I just wonder, a lot of people think very highly of Steve Sarkeesian. And maybe maybe that's uh, with, you know, do some, some, some thought, but... Boy, they didn't have any offense, and that's what his his calling card is. He was the offensive coordinator at Alabama before coming here. Um, Alabama doesn't seem to have skipped a beat, losing him and bringing in Bill O'Brien, and Texas's offense looked pretty pedestrian and not in this game whatsoever. Uh, they only rushed. They only averaged three point four yards per rush in this game, for a total of one hundred and thirty eight yards. Eek, eek. Average yards per pass five point one. I mean, it's checkdowns. Every pass is a checkdown. I mean, you don't have any talent at quarterback, and and it's evident. But Texas gets Rice next week, so they'll have an opportunity to try and figure out the offense and and really the defense too. Forty points you give up to Arkansas, yikes! Arkansas plays Georgia Southern, who's 
who's one of the teams we've talked about who's a little bit better than you would think. Um, so possibly an Arkansas hangover. Um, but but generally you don't see that when, when your style of play is running heavy and playing good defense. So we'll see how those two teams perform coming up this week. Our second to last game that I wanted to highlight uh, is the Utah and BYU game officially referred to as the Holy War. Um, keep in mind, BYU has the absolute least returning production of any D1 program. Okay, And the last time BYU beat Utah was in 2009. So last week... And I think I talked about this on the podcast. BYU beat Arizona 24-16, but man, they did not look good. Their defense played well. Not great, but well. And their offense looked terrible. Jaron Hall, the new quarterback, did not uh, fill, the, fill the shoes um, of, of, um, of the now starting quarterback for the New York Jets. Um, but, uh, but, he, but he played well in this game. 18 of 30, 149 yards, three touchdowns. He had 92 yards rushing. Making good decisions, no interceptions, um, you know, not a ton of yards, but the run set up passes in the red zone, uh, and I think they were really effective at that. Tyler Algier had a great game last week, comes back this week, 27 carries, 102 yards. That's the running back for BYU. Had a, had a really, really solid performance. He's a, he's a good workman-like 100-yard-a-game uh, guy. Um, and, then you, and then you had a guy, Lopini Katoa, who kind of came off the board uh, and gave you an extra eight carries, 30, 33 yards. Uh, something unique and interesting about this BYU team, uh, they, they, uh, they have no receiver had more than 40 yards receiving. There were eight separate receivers who uh, were targeted and had catches. Not a single one of them had more, more than 40 yards, which, which tells me one of two things, and I guess it could be a mixture of both. But the one thing is that uh, Jaron Hall, the, the new quarterback, is looking at a ton of checkdowns, a ton of short passes. Maybe they're setting up screens out of the backfield, uh, which is not a great sign. Uh, but the other way you could look at it is he's spreading the ball around. He's not locking in on one guy. Maybe he's working through a bit of a progression and finding other receivers. Uh, Allen called it. If you if you check the tape, go back to our previous podcast, Allen called this game, and I give him credit. Man, he called it. I, I, Utah, the numbers were really high on Utah. I thought for sure Utah would get this win, especially how underwhelming BYU looked against Arizona. But Allen called it. He called BYU. And we give a tip of the hat to Allen for that one. Uh, BYU, their linebacker, Keenan Peely, uh, led the way again. Seven tackles and a sack. Uh, Chaz Ayu, who's kind of new on the scene uh, for the BYU defense, had a big inter- interception. You know, And then if, if we look at the flip side of the ball, Utah, okay, licking their wounds after this 17-26 to 26 loss, uh, Utah started the game. This is their three-series sequence to start the game. Interception, fumble, and a punt. Those are your three drives to start the game. That puts you on a terrible footing to get started. Charlie Brewer, this is a dude in this game. He he broke the milestone in his career of having passed for 10,000 yards in his career. Okay, Remember, he transferred from Baylor where they throw it around like it's going out of style, okay? So he's not afraid to pass the ball. Well, tell me then why it is. He, he finishes this game with 15 for 26, only 147 yards passing. One touchdown, one interception. <clears throat> something ain't right there. This is something that I was worried about, and I really wanted to try and figure out a way to account for this in the numbers when I was uh, doing the preseason uh, data, but it's rare when these transfers uh, really pay off. I mean, you're seeing it still now in year two with Derek King down at Miami, where somehow they just don't gel with the system. You know, and so, uh, you know, they, they, they need to figure out what their identity is. Charlie Brewer is a gunslinger. But Utah, historically, has been a run-first, mobile quarterback, big, solid defense program. And so, you know, looking back, obviously hindsight is always twenty twenty. but looking back now, it's like, I don't understand how he was a fit to begin with. 
Um, so, so his style is not meshing well with their system, um, and and that's a cause for concern. I think if you're a Utah fan, I will say though Utah discovered a a, a new weapon, and I think he's going to be um, impactful moving forward. And that's running back Micah Bernard, 12 carries, 146 yards, and a touchdown. Uh, the running game has been the identity of Utah as far as I can remember. And and I just am befuddled by this combination of the Utah program and a gunslinger like Charlie Brewer, but maybe they can prove me wrong. Utah, uh, on the defensive side, Devin Lloyd, again, one of, one of my real favorites, and I, I called him out to be potentially Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Year at the start of the season. 13 tackles. He's in the top five in the country in total tackles uh, so far this year. He had a tackle for loss. Uh, Noah Sewell, 11 tackles, three sacks. Um, But basically the story of the game, uh, Utah had those two early turnovers. It set the tone for the evening, and they were out of the game early and and never really really made an impact moving forward. Um, Utah gets a really sneaky good San Diego State team next. Uh, boy, they better pack a lunch pail because that San Diego State team seems like they have found their identity. And and they, they could very well, Utah could very well lose this game if they don't get things right and, 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 and uh, prepare correctly for this game. On the flip side, one of the big games this upcoming weekend is BYU, a team that I think looked much improved from the Arizona game. They are uh, in Tempe against Arizona State. Both teams ranked in the top 25. That one is going to be a fun one to look forward to. Uh, And then the final game we're just going to sort of cover and recap here from the first week is, of course, the night game uh, on ABC Michigan and Washington. Now, this game kind of lost a little bit of luster with Washington losing to Montana last week, uh, and that was only kind of uh, exacerbated. Washington is a program that is um, just really struggling right now. Um, you know, I, I think if you look from uh, the Michigan perspective, is Cade McNamara the guy? I mean, he has managed the first two games well. He played well in the first game against Western Michigan, but you had Ronnie Bell. Ronnie Bell is now out for the season, and he struggled to find any real passing threat. Uh, Cade McNamara on the game, 7 of 15, 44 yards. Uh, with Ronnie Bell out, is there's just a, a lack of dynamic weapons on the outside. Uh, you know, but I think they've really settled into their identity. Uh, and I'm sure Mike Hart is a big part of this. But the kid Blake Corum, sophomore, 21 carries, 171 yards, and three touchdowns. Uh, I mean, I think Michigan fans are going... Zach Charbonnet, who? I mean, this Blake Corum is a stud. And I think they need to try and find a way to get him uh, in in some of the passing game. You know, in some of these games where they're going to have defenses that are going to stack the box and they're going to take this run away, you're going to need to find a way to slip some dynamic players out into the uh, the wide sides of the field. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe some tunnel screens if you can get just behind the defensive line on a blitz. Uh, but but they looked fantastic. The running game for Michigan looked fantastic in this game. Their offensive line is clearly tremendous. Uh, in addition to Blake Corum, uh, the senior Hassan Haskins had a wonderful game. 27 carries of his own, 155 yards and a touchdown. Uh, the game was just flat out dominated by the running game. And that Michigan defense. The Michigan defense held Washington to only 50 yards rushing, 1.6 yards per rush. Uh, senior linebacker Josh Ross had 11 tackles to lead the way and three quarterback hurries. And, you know, for a lot of people, uh, All-American candidate, the defensive end, Aiden Hutchinson, three big sacks in this game. They were in the backfield. They were mixing it up for Washington. They had no idea what to do. Uh, on the other side of the ball, Washington, with their freshman quarterback, Dylan Morris, he had some success between the 20s. Uh, he went for 20, or 20 for 37. Uh, 20 attempts or 20 completions on 37 attempts, 293 yards and a touchdown. Uh, but they really couldn't find any success in the red zone and got stymied. If you look at his numbers on the season, 519 yards, which sounds like quite a bit, only one touchdown and three interceptions. There's clearly a problem. He can't, 
he can't find a way to cash it in once they get into the red zone. Uh, the junior wide receiver, Terrell Bynum, had five receptions for 115 yards and a touchdown. Uh, and that was the only touchdown that Washington scored in the game. And it goes to my point about the red zone. I mean, that was a 22-yard touchdown pass late in the fourth quarter. You know, so they had to be outside of the red zone. And then it was also late in the fourth quarter when Michigan was already planning on their next game next week against Northern Illinois or what party they were going to that night. Um, for, for Washington's defense, uh, they gave up 343 rushing yards. Um, year two of Jimmy Lake, this is trouble, I think. Um, I don't know if it's a situation where Chris Peterson kind of saw the writing on the walls or not, but there's clearly been an issue in the transition between Chris Peterson and now this Jimmy Lake leadership. Washington is not headed in the right direction, and they, they really need to go back to the drawing board and figure out what their identity is. They seem to be confused on offense. They seem to be confused on defense. There doesn't seem to be any real leadership. Uh, they get Wash. They get uh, uh, Arkansas State next week. That's a game that they should win handily, um, you know. But they did just lose to Montana last week. So really, who knows? You know, you hope that they can clean it up. But aside from Oregon and I guess Stanford now, that Pac-12 North is is looking pretty anemic, pretty weak. Um, uh, which is kind of surprising. There's really kind of a, a shift of power, it seems like, that's occurring from the north down to the south with Arizona State looking great, UCLA back in the top 25. Uh, with USC aside, and I guess Utah now, but Colorado's looked great. Arizona looked much better this week than they did last week. Uh, so we'll see if Oregon, Oregon can get, or Washington can get some of those uh, things cleaned up before next week against Arkansas State. Michigan gets a... A sneaky good Northern Illinois team. We, we were a little bit higher on Northern Illinois than we probably should have been. Uh, Allen picked them in his picks last week. They lost to Wyoming, which I which I thought would be the case, but Northern Illinois actually beat Georgia Tech two weeks ago. So they're not they're not afraid or starry eyed when it comes to playing a Power Five team. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out for Michigan. You got to figure out what's going on. Cade, Mac, Cade McNamara. Um, is it an effective, I guess, uh, game manager? But he is lost. He doesn't have any weapons. And, and if anyone takes that run game away from Michigan, I don't know where they go to find points. So uh, that's sort of the recap. Michigan uh, is now ranked number 25. Uh, it's the first time they've been in the rankings since week 11 of last year. Uh, that, that may sound super recent, uh, but Michigan didn't even start playing until week 9 last year because uh, they had the shortened season in the Big Ten. Um, so I think a much better start to the season for Michigan. I think Jim Harbaugh's job is more secure, but we'll see how things go uh, when the Big Ten schedule starts. And with all that being said, that is our recap. And I am Tyson Quiller, and this has been the Fan Section Podcast. I'm trying to go from memory here, but like and subscribe. Uh, get into the mailbox. Uh, I believe we have a Gmail account. Listen to maybe a previous podcast for that. And, uh, yeah, we'll look forward to hearing from you and seeing you uh, next time. Big week coming up, week three.